Hey, 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 how's it going out there, my mushroom lovers? Oliver Carlin here, and I'm the Mushroom Man. I'm about to jump into a podcast with Joe Moore, who's the founder and CEO of Psychedelics Today, a company that has one of the most popular podcasts on the topics of psychedelics that exists online today with over 2.4 million downloads. Not only that, they have a huge, broad database of education material around psychedelics to help people improve their mental health through different various tactics and to help them learn to become a teacher and help other people to do this. With over 9,000 students enrolled, Joe is gonna walk us through how he got introduced to psychedelics, why is he so passionate about it, and where is he planning to go in the future with the company? So the big question is this. With over 10,000 different species of mushrooms, how do people that want to benefit from their various medicinal properties accurately identify them in the wild, grow them at home, or make them taste delicious without having to read confusing medical reports and possibly eating a poisonous look-alike by mistake? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Oliver Carlin, and welcome to Curative Mushrooms. All right, all right, we are live. So, um, well, cool. Again, just um, thanks for being here, Joe. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day, and I know you're busy um, to come out here and do a podcast with us. So thanks for being here. Absolutely, Oliver. Really excited to be here. I'm uh, excited to learn more about you and what you're up to and yeah, share with your audience what, what we have going over here at Psychedelics today. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds great. And so, um, so for those who don't know, Joe, he's the CEO of Psychedelics today, and I'm sure he'll get into that more and here in a little bit. Um, but really Joe, what I would like to do is I'd like to just go all the way back to the beginning. Um, for you, like, what is it, what does that look like for everyone? Like, why did you, what got you into psychedelics? I um, have been uh, <laughs> trying to refine this story for years, um, kind of make it a really simple one right now. Um, I started with an undergrad in computer science, quickly realized I did not want to be a full-time programmer, um, jumped over to the philosophy department rapidly, as quickly as I could. And um, in our first assigned reading, uh, uh, you know, in philosophy 101, the teacher assigned this book, Holographic Universe, which was filled with, I think the author was Michael Talbot, the book was filled with really weird stories that, um, for whatever reason, I, I had a hard time swallowing some of these stories. They're kind of new agey, mystical, big synchronicities, stuff like that going on. And the one story that really hooked me, that made me go to the library to fact check or at least dig deeper, was um, stories about Stan Groff's LSD psychotherapy in Prague, Soviet Prague at the time. And the stories just looked too fantastic to be real. So, you know, it looked like it looked like a uh, exorcist or poltergeist, but it came out with the woman being in total remission from her, um, you know, drug abuse. And um, yeah, her trauma history seemed resolved after a couple sessions with Stan. So I uh, started reading all I could about Stan Groff, the school library, small state school in New Hampshire. Thankfully, we had a bunch of books on Stan Groff, like, you know, thank heavens. And I started digging in, reading pretty intense technical uh, literature <laughs> at a young age. And uh, a couple of years later, found a community in Vermont, the next state over, uh, the Dream Shadow community. And they've been really helpful um, 
by by doing a lot of holotropic breath work with them being with these folks who have been down this psychedelic mm -hmm. rabbit hole for in some cases many decades themselves so I, I found mentorship i found a practice i found a whole broader set of literature i wanted to get exposed to people in the scene i wanted to understand jack cornfield was a really big influence on me um and then probably uh around the time i wrapped um my undergrad podcasting started to happen around 2005 and um, the Psychedelic Salon was probably one of the first ever podcasts. And this gentleman, Lorenzo Haggerty, had been um, collecting or, or stewarding audio collections of Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, Sasha Shulgin, like all these legends in the space, Robert Anton Wilson, and, and serially posting them. And um, I, at a certain point, Oliver, I was listening to Tim Leary, Terrence McKenna, et cetera, all these legends in the scene every single night going to bed. So I, I had, I was, you know, constantly having Tim in my ear, Terrence in my ear forever. And, um, what were, what were you like, what was grasping your attention? Like what was drawing you into all this? Dissatisfaction with the status quo. The world did not look like it was in great shape. Like, as we know, the environmental situation is a bit tenuous right now. And I've, I had been aware of this for a long time. Um, I also, uh, at a certain point, started just seeing, oh, look, these people we pay taxes to are actually lying to us regularly. <laughs> and what are we like, what are we to do <laughs> in, uh -huh. in, in fact, these people that are supposed to be serving us are serving other interests that are not us. Absolutely. So, yeah. you know, where, where does faith go, you know, in this kind of weird, uh, post religious, post institutional religious frame where are we to go and psychedelics and inside seemed like the answer to me and um community and like direct democracy of some kind or another at a smaller scale like i, I think scale is a really big problem that we're going to have a you know a lot of hard time with going mm. forward but you know a group of 100 people you get together you could probably do some really great stuff assuming you're not trying to dominate each other too much and terence mckenna's dominator culture critiques were really helpful for me as well like what we're mm -hmm. seeing the world in the world right now is direct relation, you know, direct um, cause of dominator culture. People always trying to put each other down and, and climb the ladder. You know, it's funny you say that because I um, recently I was actually thinking about this same topic. And mm -hmm. like if once you lose trust in your own government, like it makes you question like everything else that they've told you, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a domino effect. And then you end up down this path, right? <laughs> That's what it feels like to me. <laughs> it's ugly, right? It's not a, it's not a really great scene to have to deal with this. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, it's troubling. I was listening to a 1977 um, audio book, uh, Robert Anton Wilson's cosmic trigger, final secret of the Illuminati the other day. And he's, he was suggesting this is a major cause of psychiatric illness right now, um, psychiatric diagnosis, at least like the lack of trust in each other, the institutions mm -hmm. that are supposed to be keeping us yeah. safe. And it, yeah. it causes a bit of a split, right? Like mm -hmm. it, and imagine how bad it was during the Vietnam war. You know, we, I don't know that we can really fully imagine it. Like we have subcultures, right. But it was like almost all of America knew the government was lying. Yeah. But these days it's a little dubious. Like we don't know. Um, that was actually back then in Vietnam was kind of like a big era of psychedelics actually. Right. During that time, mm -hmm. at the same time, there's way more consumption now. 
um, than ever has been in history, which is cool. But yeah, during the Vietnam War, you're spot on, Oliver. Like, yeah, it was massive amounts of use, unprecedented levels of use, but small relative to today, I think. Right, right. And back mm. then, it was kind of just, it was brand new back then, right? People were still figuring it out, mm-hmm. I think, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely come a long way too. Like we finally have elders that are from our own, you know, countries. Like there were elders, but there wasn't really. I don't think culture, American culture, Western culture, is really equipped to um, integrate, uh, you know, traditional Native American mestizo uh, mm-hmm. shamanic viewpoints. Right? It's not or indigenous viewpoints. It's not really an easy thing for us to think of 60s culture, just getting it right away and jumping in. And right now we're trying, we, we still don't really get it. We're trying, and I think we're a little more ethical these days, but you know, I, I even have trouble with the word ethics. <laughs> I don't think we really agree on what that means. For ethics. <laughs> yeah. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by so, uh Like what are, do you have a good definition of ethics? ethics ethics like okay so like i guess it's kind of like something that you think of that represents your way of being maybe like almost oh. like a belief almost like a belief in the way that you 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 are or something the way you behave right yeah so like the traditional definitions are something like moral principles that govern a person's behavior or the <laughs> of an activity or and uh you know the definition i like because it's core philosophy the branch of knowledge that deals with moral principles but it's like where where do morals come from you know like, where, are <laughs> they universal cool. like clearly not on this planet like, <laughs> there's big swaths of culture that have wildly different um ethos to like you know what we think of as contemporary american cultures values and, and morals and um they change all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, three years ago, cancel culture was, you know, the thing. That's what we were all supposed to do is cancel people. Um, nowadays, we're realizing maybe that wasn't so smart, you know? Um, and you, there's an active debate. And I <laughs> I lean on the side of the people on this one. But how how are we to allocate resources to help people in need who aren't don't have food or don't have clothes or, you know, are cold? Um you know, things like that. Like, should that come from mandatory taxation or should that be a charity thing? Like, I I think we mm. need to figure out how to make it non-coercive for all parties involved, but I don't know the right path towards that. So in the meantime, taxation is where I kind of lean, but it's it's a really a hard thing to say, you must do this. <laughs> you must put your money towards that. And we'll so put you now- in jail if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, so now, so this not was to mention what? all the money we're spending on bombs and killing people with the same taxes, right? It's like, uh, <laughs> cool. you paid your taxes, right? Yeah, totally. Um, so, you, so you helped feed some people, but you also killed some people too. Yeah, we the tax situation would be a whole nother podcast, probably. Right, and it's just like <laughs> a, a leading a leading topic for ethos, right? Like mm. ethics, like. I, I think largely we just don't agree on much here. Um, Terrence McKenna had the line, um, epistemology has been balkanized. And this is a reference to like the Greek peninsula and how 
it was just getting broken up into smaller and smaller countries to to the point of where we're at today. Yeah, Albania, Macedonia, mm -hmm. Serbia, Croatia. Like there's so many wars happening in the 70s and 80s over there. And uh, I think even in the 50s and 60s stuff was breaking up because there was some pressure from the Soviet Union. So like that's a reference to, you know, epistemology being the, the branch of philosophy around knowledge and like where, what do we know <laughs> for sure? What, you know, how mm -hmm. do we know things? And, yeah. you know, what he's saying is, our way of knowing things have been broken up into smaller and smaller chunks to the point where we're not really able to communicate across these borders and barriers. And this is a, I think it's a really important topic to understand. It is. It, you know, I think about that stuff all the time. And just like you're saying, it's like, how do you know what to believe and what not to believe? And mm -hmm. because the only thing you really know for sure is what you personally experience. Like that's the only known definite fact that you know for sure you experience that, right? But everything else, like it's all stories that were passed down and you're getting them secondhand, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this can lead into psychedelic experiences. So you can have an experience of the mushroom yeah. telling you XYZ moral lesson. But how do you know? And how do you, how do you know you should <laughs> actually be choosing that as your path forward? just because you ate, you ate something and then you got some messages. It's like, you know, I've had some messages after eating some bad food in the fridge. Right. But it's, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a really important topic and discernment is a really big thing in the psychedelic space. We really need to slow pump the brakes on what we actually believe. And I think, yeah. have you seen this nonprofit ICERS yet? I C E R S. Um, I they do a lot of really great indigenous work and, and kind of oh, values yeah. work. Um, you know, kind of on the ethics topic, but they, they put out a really great study the other day about not believing everything you receive in ayahuasca sessions because there can uh, be harm. From it. Oh, um, interesting. Right. Sometimes it's good to follow the lessons, right? <laughs> but you always follow everything it tells you. Maybe right, not right. is the answer in my opinion. I like to do, um, you know, Bruce Lee was a philosopher and I really like Bruce Lee because I, I, you know, I like martial arts and he was kind of the bridge for me into that. But he had a, a, stain, a saying, um, use no way as way. And for me, I say I use no belief as belief. <laughs> I don't have beliefs. I have no belief. And that is my belief. <laughs> it's Radical kind of agnosticism. And I, 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 I think there's some utility there. Um, Robert Anton Wilson was famous. He's a big time LSD philosopher, did a lot of mescaline as well in his day. Um, he, good friends with Tim Leary, he was kind of radical around agnosticism and belief. He had a line, I, I'm sure he stole it from someone else. Um, belief is the death of intelligence. And mm, I like that. Why not act in a more model agnostic way? So, what if we said, okay, from the perspective of transpersonal psychology, the situation is X from the perspective of neuroscience and imaging. The perspective is Y. And what if we had 20 data points and put them all together and then we had a more holistic vision of the situation, right? Mm -hmm. um, that sounds a lot more intelligent than excluding data yeah. um, from your model. And it's not very scientific to exclude data. No. Um, if you're and looking I, yeah. at getting to the basis of what, you know, the situation is. Yeah. And I know for me, like, like before I did psychedelics myself, like 
my beliefs, I feel, were holding me captive to a way of thinking. And it was almost like these walls that didn't allow me to see anything else. And as soon as I broke those walls down and my belief became no belief, all of a sudden I could listen to everything. And everything was like, I, you know what I mean? Like you could, there was like all the information's available to you now. <laughs> You're not limited yeah. <laughs> to your beliefs. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a big deal. It's, um, and I love Bruce Lee. He was a good synthesizer of East West knowledge and synthesizer martial arts systems. Like, you know, you read some of his work and it's, it is really good philosophy. Honestly, he was a really <laughs> big time thinker. Like, yeah, did he, he do his early days with Shaolin and then he kind of like did his own deal? Do you, do you recall much of the history there? Yeah, he was in, he, he grew up in China and mm -hmm. he was just a troubled high school kid or, and he was troubled youth and his dad introduced him to Ip Man, which was, everyone's familiar with the movie Ip Man now, but at the time that was like his teacher and his teacher is one that got him into martial arts and eventually he came to the United States and, but that's kind of his background mm. on I don't, as far as Shaolin, I don't remember ever reading him going there, but um, it could be. Yeah, it sounds like, um, just pulled up his wiki, it sounds like there was a little bit of a touch point, but I don't think that's where it really came up. Um, so it's pretty okay. interesting. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, there's like a lot of wisdom in the Chinese traditions. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, Tao Te Ching is immortal. And, you know, I think there could be some of that with Confucianism, too. It's like a lot of pragmatism and Confucian philosophy, for sure. So, so you were so back. So this was all you were studying all this back in what, like 2001 time frame? 2001 is when I bumped into that Michael Talbot um, holographic universe book. And right around that same time, I started reading Stan Groff's literature on uh, LSD psychotherapy. So when did you like actually were you, were you already doing psychedelics personally or were you just at this point just studying about it? Uh, I was smoking a lot of cannabis. I was drinking too much. And I think I was a little too wild for the people that had psychedelics in their possession um, to okay. want to share them with me. I was certainly curious. Um, mm -hmm. Holotropic breath work was definitely like where I landed. Um, okay. And I was doing a lot of that. And um, there were really big experiences there. Uh, so that that was kind of where I got my start. It was probably until five or six years in that I had my first major psychedelic experience. And that was that was with um, ayahuasca in a, in a group ceremony with a um, shaman from the Amazon who came up to do stuff oh, with wow. us. So it, it was really interesting um, and really helpful. And uh, I think all of my experience and all my training and reading helped tremendously it was a really big experience and i think if i had been less prepared i would have been you know crushed i could have built myself back up again but you know it would have right. been a really difficult time yeah now that's that's an interesting topic right there because mm -hmm. you know a lot of people getting into psychedelics for the first time i think understanding the importance of expectations and setting right is really mm -hmm. crucial because i i hear stories from our members all the time how they've had these experiences in their past, but it was more in a party setting or it was more in this, it wasn't in a manner to help to heal them or to give mm -hmm. them another way of viewing the world or anything like that. It was just this yeah. thing they did to have fun and that's not the way to do it, right? It's, um, 
it's one of the ways um you know right like let's back off on belief like i don't know <laughs> right like i don't um i do i ha i do and have done a lot of partying with psychedelics okay. you know even with people who is their first time um i'll you know be with them in a in a more of a recreational setting it's um when we critique recreational use we're helping support the drug war so i try to really be careful um right. you know we're making more reasons why law enforcement should be watching us carefully right and mm -hmm. who's to say taking mdma with 20 20 good friends at a at your favorite band and dancing all night is a bad thing likewise right. with mushrooms mdma right right etc like yeah there's um i think in fact that could be wildly therapeutic but you know it's also like pleasure where we have to remember we were founded this country was founded by a lot of puritans and we still have a lot of that going on you know like mm -hmm. the calvinist worth work ethic like pleasure is just not part of our vocabulary here in america in, in the way it should be we look at older countries like pleasure has evolved in a way that seems appropriate in some european countries um mm. maybe too far in some cases but it's still like a lot better than what we've got and pleasure pleasure can be really healing and helpful and help pull us out of really desperate mental states and by yeah. pleasure you're talking about using these these met these plant medicines or these drugs in a way that's just pleasurable right is that what you mean right yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right gotcha. so like think for example if we were able to replace uh nicotine and alcohol use with occasional mdma and mushroom use like how healthier the population would be um even if it's not in a real shamanic context it's still substantial improvement health-wise for a lot of these folks and it, it could become a public health issue right like mm -hmm. oh hey look these things are way safer to party with and better for your your body why not sub you know um I don't want to be anti-alcohol or anti-tobacco, really. I just, you know, we should take the relative harms in, into account when we're, we're trying to make decisions. Now, what's your, now here's a good one. This gets mm -hmm. into the whole belief thing, right? Yeah. What's your thought on addiction? Because to me, addiction is just a label and this gets into more of a belief thing, right? So what's your thought on addiction? Because I get this one a lot. Yeah, it's... um. That's a funny one, right? I've had it, had family that has it, um, you know, friends too. And I think it can happen with anything. It doesn't need to be alcohol. It could be a behavior. It could be another kind of chemical like sugar or, you know, mm -hmm. French fries or something, right? Exactly. Like I have a compulsion exactly. to do that or, you know, <laughs> it's a, it's a category of behavior and it's kind yeah. of similar to OCD a little bit. Like, you know, I have to go back and do this 49 times. Otherwise, I think something bad might happen. Um, you know, like their behaviors can become, you know, addiction. Um, apparently, the right term, uh, according to uh, researchers, is um, if we're talking about substance, is substance abuse issues or um, mm -hmm. what is the term? alcohol use disorder or nicotine use disorder or something like that. And that, that apparently is a less harmful label and less stigmatizing label for these folks. Like, obviously if they don't want this behavior and they want to get it fixed, like there are, there are, there are some ways, right. Do we want to mm -hmm. medicalize it? Like I'm, I'm a little iffy on that. Like, I think 
some people with medical training should be able to interfere. But you know, it's it's a, it's a really complex topic. There's a good book called um, mm-hmm. Two that are that are worth reading in this regard, Saving Normal, um, by a gentleman that actually wrote the DSM five or is like the lead of the commission on DSM five, the kind of the Bible for psychiatry. Some really good mm-hmm. um, things in there about like medicalizing behaviors, and then also um, Thomas Zaz, really famous psychiatrist, um, wrote the book called uh, the myth of mental illness and he he likewise goes in further and saying like is this actually a disease this is just behaviors or you know in in the same way gangrene is a disease is schizophrenia also a disease or ocd or lack of sexual desire like i think there's a big difference you know it you know staph infection ear infections you know um lesions cancers those are very different order of magnitude or like order of thing than you know, behavioral or psychiatric diagnostic categories, generally speaking. Um, but yeah, like in terms of addiction, I, I don't know. Like if somebody loves it, awesome, good for them. Do they really love it? Are they actually a thinking person and can make that decision? I don't know that that's for us to really make that judgment call for these people. I think mm-hmm. people should, when they're ready, seek the treatment they want and need. I love Portugal's model right now. Have you? Mm-hmm. Do you know much about the drug policy in Portugal? Um, no, it's brilliant. So they had far worse uh, per capita AIDS situation than the United States did. And to address it, they decided to decriminalize all drugs. And yeah. instead of criminal penalties for possession related offenses, um, they would, uh, if they caught somebody, they would actually have this, and it looked problematic, they would send them to a tribunal, a doctor, social worker, you know, addiction specialist, all that kind of stuff, really, really small fine, like $20, $30 or something and say, Hey, wow. are you, do you want treatment? That's pretty are you cool. ready for treatment. If so, yeah. great. Come with us. If not, here's some advice on how you can be safe. Wow. You That's know, nice. Right. And people can yeah, maintain I, I, a heroin addiction with a safe supply and supervision <laughs> for many, many, many decades. Like the worst problem is probably, you know, bowels right like you know take opiates for too long get some trouble there um and if you have good medical supervision like people can easily survive you know for the longest periods of time even self-administering well like now for another example for addiction that this one gets me a lot because like i microdose like daily pretty much Mm -hmm. and so people see me doing that and they say oh you're addicted to it and so this is where this whole stigma around addiction comes in, because me personally, I believe there's healthy addictions, just like I'm addicted to water. I'm addicted to oxygen. You know, there's these things that I like to have because they make me healthier. Like, so I, be- I think that there's addictions that make you better. And so like addiction, yes, there's bad ones, right? That do bad things and people want to stop those. But then I think some, they just umbrella everything into bad. It's like, it's what it seems like for addiction. <laughs> so, right. Like I've, I love exercising. I love going to the gym. I love snowboarding, yeah. skiing, biking, skateboarding. Like I love getting my adrenaline fix and my flow fix. Um, mm-hmm. That said, many years ago, I had a addiction to uh, powerlifting and, and it was a real <laughs> deal. And like I ended up needing two surgeries as a result of my addiction because oh, I would not take days off. I would love like the rush from deadlifting was so good that I, I, you know, totally liquidated some tendons 
and needed wow. some really radical surgery. So in your knee? Uh, I was in my elbows actually. Elbows. Um, yeah. Uh, lateral epicondylitis. Uh, so I needed some deep bridalments and yeah, I tried everything before surgery. How big were nuts. you then? How big were you back then? I was probably let, I was probably 190 at that point at 510. Yeah. At the, at the highest. Um, yeah. It was fun. Like I loved it. I could eat 5,000 calories a day, which is like, <laughs> obviously, you know, a little bit much, but I, I absolutely loved it. And, uh, you know, to bring back philosophy and Plato, one of the earliest psychedelic guys that we have, uh, you know, good evidence that he was probably a psychedelic person. Um, it's about the golden proportion. Like what is the actual median thing between both ends? Like, where do we, where do we find that sweet spot between too much and too little? And, um, yeah. like the yin, and yang, the yin and yang balance, yeah. right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly. The, the ratio, the golden proportion, phi, yeah. you know, uh, the logos, all this stuff, like, what is it? And I think this is something that we should be analyzing for ourselves. And, you know, they, they always wanted to talk about virtue, the ancient Greeks. And that's kind of like, you know, yeah, these morals should be universalized. It's like eh, some maybe, but you know, I, I think there's something there and this is something people should be, I think, considering, you know, just cause John Oliver told you it was the right way forward. Like, is it like mm. question people, even yeah. if you think you're totally in line with them? Exactly. Totally mm -hmm. agree. So, <clears throat> so now we'll, if we move forward now, so you, you were studying about psychedelics and then uh, for like five or six years, and then you had your ayahuasca experience and with a shaman from the Amazon, which is freaking awesome. Um, do you mind touching on that at all? Like how, how did that affect you? Were, well, actually, before you did that, were you nervous or like, how did it look like going into that? Because you had you, you'd never done anything like that before that, right? I had tried, right? I, I had grown mushrooms, I think, at that point and consumed okay. them. I, uh, I had some really small experiences. I hadn't had a big one yet. Um, yeah. And yeah, I was nervous to a degree. I fasted all morning as I drove there. I think I woke up at four in the morning, drove over to New York and um, yeah, got into it. And it was definitely, definitely a little creepy. Definitely. <laughs> um, I trusted the people that referred me. So that helped quite a bit. You know, I wasn't going into just some chop shop. It was it was a relatively legit scenario. I, I these days I have plenty of critiques of what happened there, but you know, I'm still very thankful of how it played out. Um, but yeah, it was it was pretty scary. Um, the funniest part for me was at the beginning before we even really got into it, where um, I think the person next to me said, "I'm really happy I'm sitting next to you. You seem so comfortable," and it's like you've done this a lot of times before. I was like, mm, bro, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I just know, I didn't know, I know what it's like to sit waiting for big material to possibly come up. Um, so like that format, that group format was really familiar to me. And uh, it was, it was scary. Like it, it was uh, probably to date the scariest 45 minutes of my life. As soon as the, you know, come up was on and yeah. um, you know, fear of losing your immortal soul, like getting occupied uh, yeah. by, uh, you know, insectoid, reptoid people or <laughs> entities or whatever it is. And, you know, uh -huh. uh, <laughs> getting really vivid exposure to uh, 
non-human intelligence is what it felt like. Uh, you know, that's a, it can be a really scary thing for folks, you know? Um, yeah. so sheer terror, 45 minutes. And then, you know, the, the normal purge, which I loved, um, it was fascinating. It was a great transition, um, from the terror. And then, um, yeah, it turned into a really big experience where I was like, just barely holding on to the amount of material that was getting thrown at me. Um, mm -hmm. past live experiences, uh, talking to dead oh, relatives, wow. um, wow. all this kind of stuff. It was really, really helpful for me, honestly. And, um, I was walking on sunshine for nine months. Like we came out of it. Everything was diamonds, mm -hmm. rainbows, you know, sang some songs with people, got to see some mm -hmm. art from folks, a little bit of sharing. Um, and it was really great. I, um, you know, I, I'm not in a hurry to get back to it, but I'm glad to know it's there. <laughs> you know, in a tough spot. Now, was yeah. there any moments in that experience where it got scary? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, for, for that whole come up. And then like really there was there's a little bit of fear around like just not getting absolutely pummeled and like overwhelmed by material. There was a little bit of fear there, but I felt like I could, based on my past experiences, really stick with it and just be mm -hmm. with the material as opposed to like get overwhelmed and freaked out. Um, and that was all, you know, past life stuff, images, like I became an octopus for a while, like all this kind of stuff. I was just oh, wow. really with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, octopus are a real weird recurring theme in my experiences. I don't, t I don't super get it yet but they, they keep showing up. Interesting. Mm. I know for me, like when I, my, I don't know, it was like my biggest fear when I, I was, my first experience was with seven grams of mushrooms in Costa Rica. Mm. And before that experience, I remember it was the night before I, and I had this fears take over me. And it was like, it was this fear of like losing like changing who I was. I was scared that if I did this, I might not be the same person I am now as I was, as I was, you know, after I, or after I take it. And I, and I think people call that the ego, right? That was like, I think I was scared of losing my ego. Maybe I think I had this, mm -hmm. that was big for me. <laughs> and so it's after. a very reasonable fear, right? It's, um, yeah. it's all we know. It's like our biggest experience of self. Yeah. It's like, if I'm not who I am, then who else am I going to be? <laughs> you know? And I, it was, yeah, it definitely scared me. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely creepy and it's um, something we have to face, right? It's, uh, you know, one of the biggest lessons we can learn here is like, am I my body? Is that the totality of who I am? Exactly. Um, and I think leaning into that question is a really big deal. And over time, you might understand that you might not exclusively be a biological organism. You might be something different um, or layers yeah. of that. Right. So let's, let's keep going into that experience mm -hmm. a little more. So you went, you went through it and then um, how was it after it was over? Like what was like your first, when you first came back into the normal reality, like, what was that like? It was beautiful. Yeah, it was. Um, 
like a big load had been lifted. Like I went in with a little bit of depression from a, a relationship uh, that had ended. And um, I, you know, it was kind of persistent depression. So I'm like, yeah, I got to do something great. Like, let's do this. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, and it was really nice to just have that lifted. And now I'm just with people and, um, you know, I can ask questions and I can hear their stories. And I always love hearing people's stories. I don't know how much value there is in that really for the individual listening, but I know it provides value to the person telling the story, you know, to yeah. be heard and listened to and witnessed. So there's a lot of that. Like, I don't recall so long ago that I don't actually recall if I shared a lot of my story. Um, but I stayed overnight. Uh, it was a really beautiful house. I stayed overnight and um, went out to breakfast with the guy who like kind of stewards the program. Um, and it was really just a great thing to kind of, uh, you know, be with people who this was their tradition and this was their path. Um, you know, after living, listening to Terrence and Tim for, and everybody else for, you know, years up to that point. Yeah. 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 And during the same period, Oliver, I was actually hosting, um, events in Boston. I was oh. hosting events under the reality sandwich evolver banner, um, in downtown Chinatown, Boston, uh, some anarchist loft and, um, helping people, you know, to grow mushrooms to like, Oh, really understand this whole landscape, um, a little bit better. It was really young. Like there were people that were still, you know, from the Boston kind of burner scene, going down to Peru and drinking ayahuasca, but it's really an obscure topic. So not all of them were, but mm. people were interested in the topic. Um, they just didn't really know, you know, okay, there's this guy here putting on these events. Like, what do we do? <laughs> and so I would actually put on like, you know, a five, 10 minute little intro spiel and just try to facilitate group conversation from there. What were these events about exactly? Like what did you covered growing mushrooms or? Yeah, all sorts of topics. Um, we had this person, um, I forget his name right now. His name might have been Scott Kellogg, maybe, uh, from the the Radix Collective, R-A-D-I-X Collective. And they were a kind of eco-anarcho group in uh, New York State somewhere. And they would actually be teaching anarchist communities how to grow uh, food, yeah. mushrooms, etc. So I think we did a yeah. two-part workshop one day. Um, four hours of like how to grow oyster mushrooms, you know, AKA how to grow all mushrooms for the most part. And then um, uh, also how to grow fish at home. Like how can you get autonomy from, you know, food systems? And that, mm -hmm. that was a big push. It's like a radical autonomy, radical um, self-reliance kind of pulling from the burner ethos there. And um, it's always been kind of a thing for me. Like, I don't, I don't really love seeing people be helpless and try to, you know, beg people for help. Like, what if we can empower each other and ourselves so that we have less of a reliance on these, you know, systems that could collapse? And that was part of it, you know, psychedelics and uh, psychedelic mushrooms and regular organic and, um, you know, gourmet and medicinal mushrooms. So like those kinds of topics were a big deal. Um, for me, I was reading Stamets back then plenty. Um, so, right, right. you know, as, as we do in the early days of mushroom stuff. So, yeah, like that was fun. We had Graham Hancock out before he published or right around the time he published Supernatural, which covered um, his idea that there, there, there could have been a major influence from psychedelics and trance states and early humanity, um, kind of evolutions of Terence's stone ape theory. Um, right. Yeah. And, you know, he came out. That was great. 
we would talk generally about shamanism. We would talk, you know, I think we hosted a Terrence McKenna birthday party once in an art loft. That was really fun. Cool. And we, you know, did a little listening party to Terrence talks and then kind of just had a party, which is fun. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, we would talk about, you know, issues with various systems in the world. Um, I would bring a lot of environmental stuff in. So it was really good. It wasn't always psychedelic, but it was regularly psychedelic. Um, and that was, it was really uh, informative and it informed my ayahuasca experience and informed a lot of things. Um, said, oh, look, with a little bit of effort, I can have an impact on, you know, a region. So it was really empowering too. And I broke from the programming they wanted me to do. They wanted me to do really specific events. I'm like, no, I'm going to do it my <laughs> way. You don't want, if you don't want me to do it. Just let me know. Uh, so right, right. never, <laughs> never got pushed back, moved to That's Boulder. Awesome did the same stuff in Boulder and Denver as well uh, for a little bit. It's a little bit of a harder scene. Boulder's really saturated. Okay. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So that, um, so that ayahuasca ceremony that you did that, um, but you would, you were already on the path, right? Of learning. I was having a lot of experiences in holotropic breath work and growing mushrooms. Yeah. For whatever reason, I never had a big experience with mushrooms. I tried a few times, but it didn't fly back then really yeah i don't i don't totally get it but they're all the stuff i grew everybody else told me they were strong um mm. so what what's the most the biggest dose you ever did with mushrooms one go probably three grams like you know one sitting okay probably you know in over the course of five six hours like five six grams just like kind of continual uh, okay. consumption yeah yeah i gotcha I know from yeah. our, from my experience, like it's, I don't know. I did seven and, <laughs> and that was like my first attempt, like at anything psychedelic. And that, that said, whatever that seven gram was though, it just catapulted me into <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I was gone for four or five hours, but, um, <laughs> but that's interesting, but I've heard like, it doesn't really like even with DMT or ayahuasca, and and stuff like that i've heard that you like the once you get to that level it's similar no matter which plant you're using like they're all a little different obviously but um like my buddy josh he's really into psychedelics and he's a psychonaut and he's he experiments all the time and mm -hmm. he's done dmt and he's done huge doses of mushrooms and he said like he's had these experiences with, with mushrooms and it was like this, it was similar to a DMT experience. So, right. And they're kinda... tryptamine. So there should be like some similarity molecularly, right? Like the radical differences in experience might come from like totally different classes of compound, right? Like comparing mm -hmm. um, psilocybin and DMT to something like ibogaine or mescaline um, mm -hmm. should be really different because um, the now, mescaline, mescaline is an amanitas, right? um peyote mushrooms and san pedro right. mushrooms muscamol okay. i think is the active compound in amanitas in amanitas yeah that was it mm -hmm. muscamol so san pedro mm -hmm. yeah i got you yeah and that that's going to be a wildly different experience too the um amanita experience to <laughs> very different category of experience very different molecule mechanism of action etc um and very different traditions behind them right like was there really an Amanita tradition in Mexico or was it always just like Northern peoples having those traditions? What was the experience in Mexico with Amanitas? 
I don't, know I don't think I'm there was like, much. That's kind of my, my point. It was like there, there's not much uh, of a tradition as far as I know around Amanitas in Mexico. Um, yeah, but, you, you know, that. Siberian shamans, um, uh, same, yeah, Siberian, like Mongol shamans. And I think um, even in northern Scandinavia, uh, similar traditions exist. Um, and it's like really dreamy. It's a, it's a really weird from a psychedelic perspective. It's kind of weird to me to call it psychedelic, but you know, things are revealed from the psyche. So like if it's, if it's really just mind revealing mind manifesting, like, yeah, mm. probably it counts. Um, the witches, uh, in Europe, like there was, there was some witch traditions using it, um, for magical purposes. And it's, it's okay. interesting. Yeah. It's, um, I've never consumed it. I've had a few friends consume it. Um, interestingly, Oliver, there's actually a, um, a big trend in, uh, Amanita sourced gummies, spliffs and other products to, you know, get people legal high from Amanitas. And, um, okay. yeah, I would have people watch out for these because there has been some fraudulent reports from, uh, mm -hmm. labs that are testing for heavy metals and other things in the product. Uh so there has been some fraud in in that space so just be a little careful that's, um, see that it always going. scares me like when i get product and i can't see what it is it scares me like i'm just like ah i don't know what's in it and it always bothers even supplements if i get powdered supplements i'm like ah like you really have to trust the source like who you're buying this stuff from you know what i mean like if you can't see the mushroom like like for me i have amanitas and but i harvested those locally here when i because i go hiking with my kids and stuff and i'll harvest some amanitas and then i'll dry them out and turn them into tea but i know like that is what it is right <laughs> mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on that actually like like um for amanitas i mean like uh people like, should be careful um in what they're buying get to know the sellers a little bit like if it's just some random person at a concert like perhaps <laughs> perhaps maybe it's okay to buy from them but the plan should really be to bring it home and do some analysis and people should be testing with um reagent test kits things like uh, bunk police and dance safe are really great sources for those and there's also now um uh, fentanyl test strips it only costs two dollars to test if there's um, fentanyl present. It's a little bit of a pain in the ass, but it's a lot better um, and a lot cheaper than an ambulance ride or dying. So you can test. There's tests to test these these mushrooms for these. And what are these different chemicals they're testing for? Is that like poisons or something? Um, it depends. Like, you know, generally speaking, mushrooms are fine. Um, cubensis varieties are fine generally speaking for consumers especially if you can see the mushroom um that said uh there the issues in, in the market that you can't really test for are mold or fun like um you know fungus you don't want on there like if it's all cubensis and it's all pure perfectly cubensis great but how are you as a consumer ever going to know that so right, right. this is where i would love to see a post-prohibition future where we can buy this stuff and know how strong it is know that it doesn't yeah, have like wouldn't uh, that, be nice? <laughs> that we don't want you know including yeah. heavy metals that can get pulled up right yeah, so um exactly. that's the future i'd like to see in the meantime we have mm -hmm. to rely on building relationships with growers and vendors we have to test with reagents um and hopefully fentanyl test strips as well like i i don't necessarily feel great saying that people should be testing mushrooms they buy um 
but I think it's a valid question. And the more you test, the more certainty you, you're working towards. You're never going to get perfect certainty. Um, mm. Likewise, like, you know, people got poisoned from um, some factory line issue, I think, with Tylenol years ago. So, oh, you know, wow. there, I, I believe that was true. Um, but, you know, this is a function of scale. Like, you know, there's still recalls for lettuce, right? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, and, you know, you mentioned something interesting, though, like mm -hmm. understanding the amount of chemicals in the mushrooms. Because, like, a lot of um, the mushrooms that people can grow, especially cabensis, right? Mm -hmm. They've been genetically modifying these things, finding mutations. And, so, I mean, some of just the cabensis strains are, like, they can be, like, four or five times more potent than than average cabensis like they get ridiculous <clears throat> so like Agreed. you said like even if you get a mushroom from somebody who knows how potent that thing could be or not be <laughs> so this is actually a good point like you don't know how strong it is and mushrooms growing right next to each other on a tray can have wildly varying potency yeah. i think data yeah. came out recently that caps and stems have the same uh, content mm -hmm. by weight generally speaking uh, so that, you know, is a cap stronger than a stem? Like that whole thing is That's a big kind of a busted debate now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And now, um, how do you solve this problem? So, you know, what a lot of folks I know have chosen to do is grind um, a lot of mushrooms up into a powder. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, spin it a lot. So hopefully you make a homogenized. Yeah, dough. you can make it all the same. Potency. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, there's yeah. going to be some That's variability. It's not perfect, but um, at least it moves in that direction. And then uniform capsules, so capsule uh, things, and hopefully they're around a, you know, 0.1 to 0.4 capsule, like 0.4 grams, 0.1 grams. Um, which is 100 milligrams or 400 milligrams, I think. That, so. That's a good point. I was with somebody and they were measuring, they were weighing their dose with the capsules. Mm -hmm. And they weren't accounting for the weight of the capsule. <laughs> right. The that they were that's, a, that's a weird one to do. It's, uh, <laughs> it's complicated. So yeah. one thing that was really helpful, I saw somebody do, um, might have been me, was weighing <laughs> 30 capsules on a really good scale. Um, and actually running an average across that to say, okay, across yeah. this sample set, we're averaging like 0.23 grams per capsule. And then we had to like kind of calculate in the capsule weight a little bit. Um, yeah. And then do you just go ahead and eat seven grams? Cause it could be like plus minus 70% potency. And Ooh, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> after I think six months, I think psilocybin is radically um, breaking down in the mushroom too. So old product could be, you know, say you get used to old product and then you get some new product. Like the idea might be to start batch testing really small. Mm. Um, so you get an idea of what this batch is like before, you know, sharing it with people or having a bigger dose yourself. Absolutely. Now, <clears throat> so up to this point, you um you obviously have a passion for what you're doing and helping people to um to also gain this insights and stuff from psychedelics now at what point how did psychedelics today come into the picture for you so a big portion of the why comes down to our our kind of stan groff orientation the transpersonal psychology orientation 
um, it was really underrepresented in the psychedelic space when we got started. And the reason we got started was to bring that conversation in. And um, it, to me, is a far less boring framework. It's a really useful and democratic framework. Um, people's exp Imagine doing a lot of research on, on people and psychedelic experiences and going, yeah, we don't, we don't really care or have anything to do with the fact that you had this encounter with Ganesha or Shiva or Jesus or whoever, right? Like mm -hmm. we don't care. That's not really part of our research. Like we care yeah. about this, this psychological measure, which is, you know, it's fair. Like it's, it's kind of the way science and psychology right. have been done for a long time. That said, again, to my point earlier, should we be throwing out data? Um, yeah. and not making it part of our story. Um, yeah, yeah, totally. And this is this means we're going to have to like kind of radically revision how we're doing science. So anyway, my business partner and I, Kyle, come from this dream shadow breathwork lineage, really Groff informed. It's um, holotropic breathwork, which is his method he developed after LSD became illegal. And that was his whole career was LSD. So um, he thankfully was able to put together this breathwork method. Kyle and I shared mentors there and uh, share a lot of lineage there. And we said, let's start the podcast. No intention of making money or a business or anything. We just wanted to share this ideology with people nice. and nice. say, hey, like transpersonal psychology is important. Religious experience, mystical experience is really important. And we should understand it better and um, not make, make people feel like outcasts when they have these. You know, there's there's ways in which people with these experiences might might be worked with better than the way they were historically being worked with and you know um I'm trying to think of some good examples of transpersonal psychology so it's more the study of what happened than why it happened in a lot of contemporary psychology we want to understand like why is this happening as opposed to cataloging very strange things that have happened and working with people around those really strange things. Right, yeah. right. So, <clears throat> so psychedelics today seems like it was kind of founded a lot on breath work. Am I, from what I'm hearing, like you have a big background. Our, our frame is that they're all the same. Yeah. Very, like largely you're dealing with the human psyche. And we use psyche as a really specific word for, for a lot of reasons. Um, mm -hmm. we don't mind <laughs> mind's a good word, but it's complicated. Like where is mind psyche is already ambiguous enough. So we use that. Um, so like the psychedelic experience, um, and the breathwork experience can be identical. So my biggest breathwork experience was bigger than my ayahuasca experience in terms no of kidding. Like potency experience. Wow. But that said, I did a lot of breathwork to, you know, roll the dice to get that experience. Not everybody's going to get that big experience this, you know, their first go. So now, you know, <clears throat> before this call with you, I've actually, I've heard a lot about breathwork. I don't, I haven't studied anything about breathworks. So I'm not totally, I do meditation mm -hmm. daily. I don't understand a lot of breathwork, but I was just on a podcast with Alan Belcher. He fought for the heavyweight champ and he won, by the way, like a couple of days ago. It was really exciting, but he, he said the same thing. He, he was big on breath work and he talked about it. And he even said like, you're, you can release DMT 
inside if you do breathing a certain way or something, which just blew my mind when I heard that. Not do you proven mind yet. It's speculated, bit? but we don't know for sure. Um, okay. So this is actually a really hotly debated topic. Uh, and called the endogenous DMT being released from your pineal gland is like the yeah. that's the talk track. Um, I'm not super up to date on the argument, but the idea was, um, you know, historically that the pineal gland gland was the, um, the bit of your anatomy. That's your gateway to the spiritual world. And then there was all sorts of weird new agey stuff that started going in. Oh, it's getting uh, calcified. Your pineal gland's getting calcified. Yeah, Therefore you can't have spiritual visions. And it's like, we don't really know if a calcified pineal gland means you're less spiritual or have less of a connection. That would be a really good study people should do that study um <clears throat> but the pineal gland was too small to produce enough dmt in a really rapid format in a really okay. rapid way so that we could have that experience and um, people then argued that perhaps if your gut was right and your lungs were functioning properly doing these exercises you could actually be releasing dmt through those other organs again all speculation right um but to me, does I started going like, does it need to be molecular? Like, does it need to, or does it make it less special if it is not, you know, a DMT related thing? Like a mystical experience to me is a mystical experience. And there's totally. many ways in which you can induce those. Um, I don't want to say like, you know, all mystical experiences equal X. I think there's, there's room for um, people to have, who have made a lot of spiritual progress and, um, growth in in themselves and assorted traditions, and they might be having a different category of religious experience, right? Somebody who's been like um, deep in a shamanic tradition for fifty years, like their mystical experience might be really different from, you know, the person just having their first one. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, you know, their first ever ayahuasca experience, for instance. Yeah, I mean. Even now, like I do different levels of dosages at different times and they're always different. No matter, it could be the same exact mushrooms that got grown. Doesn't matter. My experience is different every single time. <laughs> it's kind of mm -hmm. interesting. It blows me away, but it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of diversity in the experience, right? It's um, this, mm. it's almost I, there's some story somebody told me a while ago, or they were trying to say, it's, tell a story, something along the lines of there's so many new continents to explore, mm. to be discovered and fleshed out. And um, we have this really privileged position in history to, you know, we, we all can grow mushrooms at home now, and we can, can be systematic explorers of the unconscious and the subconscious and, you know, whatever these worlds are. You know, yeah. there's a lot, there's a lot of experiences cataloged that you could try to recreate. There's experiences that are novel that you could try to create, um, group experiences that you can create. There's so much here. Do you mind to, um, maybe share a little bit about what does breath work mean? Like I, I haven't um, looked it up at all, so I don't know, but like, what does that mean yeah. if someone's practicing breath work for this type of purpose? Yeah. Like what does that look like to somebody? It's um breathwork is a really large category of a of a term. There's a lot of practices that could be called breathwork, right? Like there's a a really easy kind of um practice of alternate nostril breathing in and out and in and out. 
Um, and that's a, you know, ancient yoga, yogic practice, like Tibetan Buddhist practice or something. And then there's all sorts of um, breathwork practices in the yoga traditions. There's breathwork practices worldwide um, where people uh, could be going into trance and doing, you know, really interesting work or healing or whatever it is. Um, Wim Hof is a really popular one right now. That's There's the all one. sorts of methods. Um, and one. this guy, it's different from what my uh, practice has been, my experience has been, but it's, it's really interesting. And it's kind of modified Tibetan Buddhist practice. I think to me breathing where they actually put, have you seen these guys, the monks that go out with wet blankets in the middle of winter in Nepal and actually will like dry the blankets um, and that. stay warm enough. And it's a, it's a type of meditation and type of breathing that can okay. produce a lot of heat and Wim Hof method kind of is a modified version of that um, part, part of Wim Hof is. So that's really interesting. Um, people can work through a lot of really interesting um, psychological material they have doing Wim Hof. Um, Stan Groff, his first clue, as far as I know, about breath work being interesting um, as it relates to psychedelics and psyche generally. Um, Wilhelm Reich, one of the student, early student of Freud, would actually start his psychotherapy, psychoanalysis sessions with, I think, 10 minutes of intense breathing with the client before doing therapy. And so this was wow. a really interesting practice um, that had a grounding. I think there was others in the European um, psychological tradition that were doing this as well. So, so that was kind of where it started. Groff um, couldn't do his LSD work anymore. That was his whole background. Ended oh, yeah. up at this coastal retreat uh, place called Esalen, which is kind of a, a big hub. The religion of no religion is what they kind of like to call it. Like, yes, all the texts are valuable, hey, but I like there's no real like truth. Um, religion and no religion. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, like, let's value all these great texts and traditions and try our best to just do well for ourselves, right? Totally. Our community. Absolutely. And uh, so anyway, there, it's, it's it was a cultural nexus point. And he's watching all these other people getting exposed to kundalini yogis, shamans from all sorts of traditions around the world um experimental psychologists from all over the world and uh, eventually he and his wife christine um decided to put together this method called the holotropic breathwork made up of five parts maybe six um accelerated breathing so the breathing looks like really big breaths so uh and no top no stop at the top and bottom so the idea is that we're moving more air than normal and it, it would be something like a <sighs> as long as we're moving more air than normal, we're in good shape, generally speaking. And the individual can actually, you know, it's coming from them. They put in the work. They can actually titrate the experience by how much air they're moving. Um, so accelerated breathing, body okay. work. So the body comes into account. The body stores all, anything that's ever really happened to us physically, the body remembers. So even if you, you know, bumped your shoulder or had some surgeries, like these things could come up and body work can help uh, with that. Um, a really great group process. Um, so being with a group and having it feel not so hierarchical can really be helpful. So the sharing, okay. the being seen, the witnessing. So um, the environment, the people. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then um, evocative music. So there's music from all over the world, hopefully mostly analog. Some digital music's fine. Um, but evocative music following a very specific arc and curve has been really great. Um, and then 
artistic expression and then safety as well so we want people to like really put down things on paper after their experience before they really get verbal with it and okay. um makes it a little more primal a little more like closer to the experience the more you put words to it the more abstracted you are from the actual experience of it um so let me yeah. let me ask you something about sure. breathwork so what do you you've been doing this obviously a while in mm. for breathwork like what is it about breathwork do you think that's causing a psychedelic type of an experience is because breathing is just oxygen right i'm breathing it's just it's almost like a recipe of oxygen and co2 right so is it is it somehow like you change the recipe in your body of oxygen and co2 and now you're able to achieve a psychedelic experience or what are your thoughts on that so what's happening is the o2 co2 levels are changing the ratio is changing um, I think it's actually that you get less O2, you're getting more CO2 and okay. um, your body tries to adjust um, and it can modify the blood pH so that you get a different level of saturation. Um, and there's something around blood chemistry uh, and the CO2, O2 balance. Stan Groff speculates that we're kind of um, simulating a dying experience kind of emulating a dying experience. Um, and there's this there's this general concept of like uh, high altitude cultures being more spiritual, right? If we think about the Peru, Peru cultures or high Tibetan cultures, like they're, uh -huh. they're kind of what we think of as like the, the, the highest spiritual, you know, people in the world, like kind of, that's a general idea we have. Um, so now that, that theory would mean they're taking less oxygen because they're at a higher altitude, right? So more yeah. CO2, less oxygen, right? And I live at 10,000 feet of altitude um, in the Rockies. And what I've noticed doing breath work here is that people go into the experience a lot quicker. Um, oh, wow. And there's something about the altitude that, that triggers that. Yeah. I haven't really been able to run a workshop since COVID, but I, I can't wait to start doing that again uh, as soon as I get a you know, a couple free days. Well, um, I know we're almost, we're at an hour now and we're kind of, um, how much time did you have? Cause normally we go for about an hour. Um, I don't want to push I can, you. I over. can shoot for another 10 probably. 10 comfortably. Okay, cool. Um, so for, I know we talked about your ayahuasca, but after you told me that you had a bigger or a more significant experience with from breath work. Do you mind to talk about that exactly? Like what that was like for you or cause that's interesting to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, it came at a really peak despair moment around the, the future of the planet. Uh, probably a lot of also personal frustrations with how things have, you know, been, you know, ex my experience of the world to date. And, um, it's really, uh, I started having a visionary experience before I even accelerated my breathing. Um, no drugs whatsoever involved. Um, my body was full on shaking. Uh, it was kind of funny cause I was, um, I was still mentoring and kind of interning a little bit with my teachers and, um, where they had me guiding the relaxation and a meditation and guiding group a little bit at the beginning. And I was, I was going to be breathing. So I didn't get to go through that. But as I'm guiding people, I'm feeling the energy kind of build and build and build. And my body's like shaking like crazy. 
and I'm thinking there's something, something big is about to happen. I believe I don't know exactly what, but I know I'm about to have a big one. Um, somehow I held it together and could, you know, uh, guide the group through that. Um, the smarter thing to do would have been to transition it over to somebody else, but I didn't want to disappoint anybody. I wanted to still be the rock star, right? So um, I lay down. I'm immediately in a visionary experience. The everything is burning. And this is like a, kind of a classical mystical experience. There's been a lot of people who have had this one. Um, you know, the world, everything's burning. Um, you know, nothing, nothing is going to survive in the physical. You know, I didn't. You know, I wasn't going beyond that because it wasn't really part of my concern at the time. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of really interesting dynamics between masculine and feminine. And I was, I was kind of like, uh, you know, seven years too early on the toxic male thing, the toxic masculine concept. Like everybody kind of picked it up in a weird way later. But at the point, I'm like, okay, yeah, like clearly um, males are doing all the burning in the Amazon and making all these decisions to do all these wars that I don't really believe in. And, um, you know, not making the decision to go green when we should be going green on a lot of things because, mm. you know, the, the atmosphere is about to, you know, take on far too much carbon and shit will be irreversible. And so I think there was some frustration about, you know, what's my place in this world? Like, is this world even for me anymore? Like, you know, previous generations had a really good, good run, but, you know, later in my life, uh, we're going to see so much pain and suffering, you know, sea level rise, et cetera, you know, lack of food, starvation, forced migrations, the works, um, you know, increased hurricane activity. So it was just like everything. And then I saw that paired with government corruption and some other shit that I was like, okay, this was like coming to a peak in this experience. And um, I was being supported by some feminine entity. And then it was like expressing itself. Like I was really experiencing all this kind of like um, internalized anger about what was going on in the world and, and disappointment, honestly, too, about what was going on, the situation, the global situation. And how, how is a young male to, to <laughs> choose to make their path in the world knowing all of this? You know, I've, I've made mm -hmm. the decision not to have children. I've made a lot of decisions around this. Um, right to date and like it's it's a bad one it's a, it's still a really core problem for me i just you know i believe that we can find a way um but i left that experience total despair i was in there for five hours um wow. it took it was my dark night of the soul experience and wow, five it took hours. Me a while like a couple months to get my shit together and go okay like i have a choice wow. roll over or fight you know and i chose fight um and I'm, you know, psychedelics being part of that, environmental, permaculture, regenerative agriculture stuff being part of that, self-reliance, all that, you know. Like, do we choose courage or fear, right? And I, I had to choose courage. Like, fear still comes in once in a while, but it doesn't help anybody. Wow. So just from breathwork, you know, that's blows me away. That I, that, I mean, it's amazing to think that you don't need any type of a substance to achieve something so magnificent as what you've achieved through your experience of just manipulating the amount of oxygen and CO2 and the way you're taking it in. <clears throat> mm -hmm. That's just, that's so incredible. I just, I love that stuff. And I meditate personally and I love meditation, 
And so I'll have to get with you on some different breath work stuff I can practice. <laughs> Cause yeah. I would love that. Yeah. that into the tip mind. is always go to, go to Wim Hof. Like this method that I, I have been doing. Um, you really need to find some people that have been trained and certified before you jump into it, in my opinion. Okay. And holotropic breathwork is the is the bigger one. My teachers call it uh, dream shadow transpersonal breathwork. And okay. Stan Groff is with another organization now, and they're calling it Groff Legacy Breathwork. You know what's funny is um, <laughs> I did a a lot of a certain substance a certain substance at one time and. It was um, it pushed me over to a point where my body was reacting in a weird way. Like I couldn't breathe mm. and I was um, I didn't know what was going on at the time. Later to find out, I think it was a panic attack or something mm. like that because we called a medic <laughs> and I had the medic on the phone because I, I was I thought I was dying. And, and then the medic's like, you just got to breathe like I'm like, I am breathing. What are you talking about? No, he's like, breathe in for five seconds and then breathe out for 10 seconds. And it was amazing because as soon as I started changing my breathing, I immediately started to calm down. Mm -hmm. And it just blows me away, the power of just breathing. That's incredible. And it, it makes you wonder too, like we don't have control over a lot of our bodily functions, but for mm -hmm. some reason we have control over breathing. <laughs> well, this That's is actually, and it's a, uh... It's an autonomic function that we can't, it's the only autonomic function we can really consciously control. Yeah. Um, and Wim Hof makes a big point of this saying that, you know, he, he's able to show that through breath manipulation, he's able to actually impact other autonomic nervous system functions. Um, and he's proven that pretty well, in my opinion, um, lab studies and, and other things. And yeah, what is it about breath? Like a many cultures, the Hawaiian cultures, the, you know, um, uh, Eastern philosophies and practices all take the breath very seriously. The breath um, practices in Africa are, you know, big, ancient practices and have been around forever. And yeah, like why? I think there's a, a tie. If you're not breathing, you're dead. And so this is what the living can do. And there's a big differentiation. So like breath is life. Breath is the first thing. If we don't get enough of it, we're out, right? Um, yeah. As an external in substance. In the survivalist world, we call it the power of threes. So it's, you can go three weeks without food, three out, or no, three days without water, and then three minutes without oxygen. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you die. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's, um, it's core to who we are. It's um, and what what I do love is that it actually shows that it's in you. Like the magic is in you. It's not in a molecule or a mushroom necessarily. There can be magic there too, but like there's so much magic in the individual, um, power that. in the individual, and um, we call it agency. It shows people that they have agency, mm. and it um, unsettles the balance in a lot of ways of uh, the way we kind of do mental health care and, and other things. It's like, well, but it's, it's good from, from a certain perspective, it's resourcing and we're giving people more skills and resources to be able to deal with stuff. Um, but you have that capacity in you. There is an inner intelligence that can heal your body the same way uh, a big slice will get healed 
might need a little help getting clean and stitched up maybe, but, um, right. you know, it will heal your body knows what to do. Mm. And if you give it the opportunity, your body, you know, can heal your psyche as well. And, um, we actually suppress hyperventilation in our culture. Um, what if hyperventilation is actually a response for the body to heal something that's got going on? Hyperventilation. And that means what? So hyperventilation looks more like a, <laughs> like, I yeah, that's, like what, that's what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. I thought I was dying. Cause you're I not, you're not dying. even getting any oxygen really in, yeah. but like the idea is like, can we support that bigger breaths? Like, um, or are we just going to stay up here and be panicky and not feel comfortable about it? Um, now, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. Like when that was happening, like I was going, <laughs> and mm -hmm. all of a sudden I had this tingling feeling coming up my arms and my legs. Mm -hmm. And he's like, the doc on the phone's like, you know, the good news is, he says, if you don't correct this, you're just going to pass out and your body will be fine. <laughs> the only the bad thing, the only bad thing that can happen is you fall down and hit your head. So if you're sitting on the ground <laughs> or laying down, you're in good shape. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and the technical term for that is carpopetal muscle spasms, more popularly called uh, tetany. Um, tetany. Mm. Um, that, well, that it's like a muscle spasm. Yeah, that's happening. Like sometimes people get like a permanent claw or something, and we can work on that. Like over time, people people oh, okay. adjust a little bit to that kind of thing. Yeah, um, but that's yeah, that's a really common experience. I I usually get it um, doing my breath work as well. But yeah, you're right. Like the if you just let it run its course, yeah, the worst thing that can happen is you you pass out, and that can happen in holotropic <laughs> breath work too, and and those other practices I was talking about. Like you uh, can pass out, but you're laying down. So you're <laughs> yeah, there you go. Lay like down the, when you <laughs> safety. actually an interesting concept. Like we want people to stay laying down or just sitting up because we mm. can keep you safer. We have better control of like keeping you safe. If you stand up and want to express that way, you could expose yourself to greater risk. Or if we're doing it in a group setting, which is how I prefer to do it, people could fall and impact somebody else or hurt right, somebody else right, yeah. and that's like um that's not people good. sometimes have a reaction they're like are you trying to control my experience it's like well no we agreed that safety was we the top priority here yeah. yeah exactly and you know if we get to know you in 20 years down the line or like i don't know three <laughs> years in like um, you can stand up fine and experience we'll, <laughs> we'll look into that but just getting to know you no way like we don't right, want you right. to get hurt that's good that's yeah good. Well, cool. Cool, Joe. Um, that's about the time we have for today. Um, do you, so we've talked a lot about leading up how you got involved with psychedelics today. So do you mind talking like, what's, what do you, what's the, um, what's the mission of psychedelics today? Where do you see psychedelics today going and what's it currently doing right now? Um, yeah. To help so we're trying to be, um, worldwide leaders, um, on this topic trying to get into as many countries as we can and um, helping steward the conversation from a really adult perspective. Like we don't necessarily want you to buy hook, line and sinker our vision. We want you to think for yourself and question authority, um, you know, and we want people to be empowered. We believe psychedelics could save the planet if implemented properly. And, um, you know, we already know mushrooms alone can do plenty to save the planet. But what if we say all psychedelics, 
plus human intelligence, Absolutely. you know, and, you know, greater levels of compassion and creative problem solving, things like that. You know, the psychotherapy angle and the spiritual angle are only one of many that we like to look at. You know, we, we're really hopeful that we can change drug policy worldwide. Um, I'm a board member of the Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, a really great nonprofit working with the federal government to get science funding allocated to psychedelic research. And I'm um, wow. actually going to be doing a congressional briefing on Tuesday of next week wow. um, on this exact topic. And um, awesome. yeah, like we do podcasts uh, three times a week right now, usually two. Uh, we've got it. We hire writers regularly and get some written content up there on our site. We've been um, educating people around harm reduction, ways of, you know, exploring this practice carefully. So giving people some fundamental tools with our navigating psychedelic series. And um, mm -hmm. we're about to wrap up our first ever 12 month training program called vital um, and vital therapy training.com. And that's okay. our answer to um, how can we take a multi-model approach model agnostic approach to mm -hmm. this topic, give people a lot of ammo so they can start making up their own decisions um, and build their community of practice. And, and we accept everybody from, you know, psychiatrists, anesthesiologists, all the way down to coaches. Um, so we, we have everybody together and we found that that kind of diversity is really helpful to people to really flesh out the idea. You know, not all doctors only want to be learning with doctors is a big thing we found. Yeah. And we're about to kick off round two of that pretty soon. Uh, vital kickoff in it. That'll kick off in uh, April. So if folks want April? to apply, come on down. We can answer your questions too. Yeah. And that's called vital. Vital. V-I-T-A-L. If anyone listening is interested in learning more about that, where can they go to find Check that? out our site, psychedelicsay.com. There'll be a link up top for vital or vitaltherapytraining.com. We're also about to launch our first ever um, state level licensure training in Oregon. Oh, wow. It'll be Vital Oregon. Um, for those of you who have been in Oregon for greater than two years, you could join us once we're able to launch that. We're we're still pending approval from the state, uh, so you know we'll have some word up on that. And that's uh, VitalTherapyTraining.com/Oregon if you want to get there. Um, yeah, and we'd love to answer your questions. You know, if people have any. So please do reach out info at psychedelicstoday.com if you want more on any of these things that we've chatted about. We've also got some books, Integration Workbook and Trip Journal have been really good for people. Um, really makes the experiences you're, you're about to jump into a lot more powerful and uh, impactful for you by doing more prep. Absolutely. And like you said before, the prep and the, um, the setting and the intention, that's what I was trying to say. The mm -hmm. intention going into these things is probably one of the most important parts, right? So absolutely. Yeah. Set setting, substance, dose, all that stuff still matters. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks so much for being here, Joe. And um, any last words you want to, you'd like to say before we close out? Um, it's really important that we work to end the drug war the psychedelic scene, mushroom people, et cetera. Everybody should be really concerned about this topic. People have been going to jail for decades, impacting their families for generations in many places, in many cases getting killed. Um, not to mention what the USDEA and its war against cocaine has done in the Amazon deforestation. Just look at the history of what we've done in Colombia. It's not pretty. 
And it's all because of prohibition. And psychedelic science would be five decades uh, into this project if it wasn't for the drug war. So we're we're really behind and we need to catch up. So ending the drug war, getting science funding, you know, getting these things descheduled or, you know, becoming decriminalized at your local level, like all is really important work. Um, so let's let's keep working towards uh, you know, a safer future for all of us who are interested in this topic and a and a brighter future for us too. And thank Absolutely. you for having me, Oliver. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for being here. And thanks for everything you're doing for with psychedelics today. And the mission sounds incredible. And, you know, taking on that other approach that most doctors ignore, almost like the spiritual side, if you will, of what's happening during these things and and everything else. So thanks so much. And um, hope to have you on again in the future sometime. So please love it. And thank you. All right, cool. Well, have a good one. Talk to you later. Oh, wait. Hey, uh, um, did you want to answer any questions? Does you, if does, there's um, questions, I can answer some for a couple. Yeah, let's see. Does anyone have any questions? Um, I'm looking at the live comments right now. Does anyone have any, would like to ask a question to myself or to Joe before we close out? Um, there's one question here on the Facebook thread. Um, okay. I'll read it. I'm a pancreatic cancer survivor and just finished six months of chemotherapy. Actually, if following... you click it, does it say show? Can you click the middle? It should say show. Do you have uh, that? Not on Facebook, no. Um, oh, no worries. Yeah, he had a nine and a half hour Whipple procedure, cancer-free as my last CT scan. Great, congratulations. Curious about rejoining the mushroom world. It's been 50 years since I had that mushroom on my pizza. Yeah, Robert, um, my best advice is um, Google's your friend here. Um, and you can buy everything you need to grow probably for less than $50 at home. But no, it is federally legal and likely illegal in the state you're living in as well. So just be really careful um, and know that you'd be taking on some risk. Um, yeah, that's that's probably the best path there. Uh, any other questions pop up? Um, here's one. I'm going to show it on the screen. Can you read mm. that? So that's one from... Yeah, what sorts of things can we do to help stop the war on drugs? So number one, get educated on the war on drugs. Understand why it happened. Uh, the DEA recently admitted in a museum exhibit that the war on drugs started for racist reasons. Um, to keep down black and Mexican populations and even uh, Chinese populations. And um, <clears throat> it's brutal. Chasing the Scream would be the first book I would recommend people read by Johan Hari. Um, and then uh, understanding how you are showing up in the psychedelic scene or other scenes and what you might be saying or doing that could be supporting the war on drugs. Uh, for instance, if you're still drinking beer, Anheuser-Busch, I believe, in their parent company, um, have been the largest funders of um, anti-cannabis legalization work, uh, as far as I understand. So, you know, wow. vote with your dollars. You know, maybe you can't drink Budweiser anymore. It's fine. Like, there's plenty of other options out there. And, uh, you know, what um, What else? Uh, try to find um, nonprofits who focus on this. We, we support nonprofits like Dance Safe. Uh, students for sensible drug policy we really like um 
uh, who is a drug policy alliance has been a really great group as well um but really uh carl hart would be another person to read his uh recent book drug use for grown-ups could really inform you and uh, help give you a a good path on understanding you know why we should simply eliminate the drug scheduling system altogether and um, work towards a safe supply for everybody yeah all right so vote with your dollar pretty much on and that can help so that's something everyone can do mm -hmm. that's watching this is you know look at what they're spending their money on and exactly and then read and get educated right like um i i think again i'll, I'll shout out those books chasing the screen by johan hari and then um carl hart former head of psychology at columbia university um he wrote a book called drug use for grown-ups and it does a really good job kind of breaking down um when we stigmatize other people for drug use we can be supporting um, the drug war um, interesting yeah. mm-hmm so just by so by talking bad about something related to the drug war can support it pretty much right yeah and understanding things like the term crackhead is super racist and we shouldn't be saying it so um it was developed as a racial tool like the that term so mm -hmm. you know we've got to be careful there um things like cokehead you know these these derogatory terms support prohibitionist narratives and we really need to work away from that yeah um, because people are dying from overdoses at unprecedented levels because they don't know how strong their thing is um, they don't they don't have any education in fact the government has spent tons of money um, giving us misinformation so yeah. we've got to really dig ourselves out of that hole as well and you know, i had this conversation with an, another person i had on the podcast quinn stone and he struggled with addiction for 18 years. And, you know, we, we talked about it and we're like, hey, you know, he there's no training like his the drug dealer that's given these people the drugs. First off, you don't even know if they're good, like what's in the drugs. But then secondly, they're not saying, hey, take a little bit of this. If you're feeling like this, you know, it's just kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just like you're on your own. And so it's no doubt that people are going down these horrible situations and being strung out because there's no training and we're just kind of just like and then we put them in jail like we just no hide culture, them away right yeah and when you go to jail you become a better um better operator in illicit drug markets and uh it's not great <laughs> um like now i know where to buy all these other things <laughs> great you know you went to drug school like drug school equals prison in a lot of cases but you know it's it's a tough one and you know we also need a good smart culture around a lot of these things so the more education you can get on substance, the better um, psychedelics and mushrooms and otherwise. Yeah. So it's really about training. It's about voting with your dollars. It's about, you know, just keep going. We've got some really great free classes. Eight common mistakes is a good one. Another one is um, psychedelics. Uh, what was it? Psychosis or spiritual emergence. I think that's a really important topic. When do we medicalize? At what point is it good to medicalize? And there's some good conversation there. And there's another one that's free. Uh, I got with a whole ton of attorneys and we did a, a series on religious liberty in the United States and how, what does a really good church look like? Like, because, you know, ostensibly we have religious freedom in this country. Right now, the DEA is apparently the arbiter of if you have sincere religious belief or not, which is outrageous. So, mm. you know, get educated on that. Like maybe that's a good path and you can start your own religion with authentic belief and 
and get federal protection in, in the future, perhaps. Yeah, so there's so many ways forward. Um, <clears throat> it's around, you know, how do you want to choose your path? All right, do you want to do one more question and then we'll close uh, Sure, yeah. Last one is from Dusty. I'll show it. All right. So Dusty says, I live in Oregon. Do I have to be a licensed therapist, practice psychedelic therapy, or can I start once your program launches? I love Dusty's name there, Dusty Business. That's good stuff. Um, so Dusty, um, Oregon has, as a state, decided that um, people who have taken a licensed training program in the state of Oregon, ours is not going to be the only one. There's already some active. Um, once you take this training program, pass an exam, are over, I think, 20, 18 or 21, have a high school degree or GED or equivalent, um don't have much of a criminal background i don't know if like drug offenses count um, but if you don't have a criminal background um you're good to roll and um you get the training you get the license you take the exam you get the license and then you would have to actually practice at a licensed um facility which is kind of a, a big burden um colorado's decriminalization program uh i think is a little bit superior in that you right now it's as long as you're not selling product, there's uh, statewide, like there's not much of a penalty for operating as a, as an underground guide um, with psilocybin, mescaline, DMT, and aboga or ibogaine, um, which is, you know, pretty good, pretty good run. Um, but, you know, you have to worry about, you're also breaking federal law. So you have to be a little careful there and understand how you want to position yourself. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating um, situation. Oregon being the first ever, um, place to license mushroom facilitators. I think Ecuador actually licenses sh ayahuasca shamans, uh, which is, you know, at a federal level, I got that they were probably the first to license shamanism, uh, which is, which is an interesting, wow. uh, conundrum, right? Like should religions be licensed, um, by the state? I, I find <laughs> that an interesting question. I don't, I don't know the answer. I, I have some feelings on it. Um, yeah, so that's probably good for now. All right, cool. Well, thanks so much again, Joe, and um, have a great one. And we'll we'll um, close out here, man. So thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks, Oliver. Take care. All right. So if you want to know how curative mushrooms is helping sad people to improve their mental health by growing happy mushrooms at home using an all-in-one simple growing system that doesn't require any complicated instructions or expensive equipment, then head over to curedmushrooms.com.